This week on Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, we each share something that made us envious lately. Is your work your worth? The generational fight about overtime and the strong opinions about sleep. Then after we talk, we have an author special. I am super excited. I'll be interviewing Elise Lunen about her extraordinary book on our best behavior, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. I'm Bridie Javor. And I'm Brie Lee. Bridie, what have you been up to this week? Well, I went to a really fun wedding, a night wedding. They a got, night wedding. They got married at 7 p.m. Is that chic? I, I thought feel it was like so chic. chic. It was, yeah. And it was a very sexy wedding because everyone was really properly dressed up for a cocktail <gasps> event because we weren't going day to night. Love it. So there were lots of sexy dresses and it was just an amazing vibe. The bride has great taste and was very beautiful. And Maddie and I had our very generous friends, Monica and Candace, look after the boys. So we had free babysitting. I'm and getting deja vu. I feel like you've started every week talking about how thrilled you are that someone's babysitting yeah. your kids for, <laughs> for free. Yeah. Well, it is thrilling to get free babysitting. But anyway, Maddie and I maybe took too much advantage of it and behaved a little badly. Uh, <laughs> I'm publicly apologising. <laughs> Because they came and my boys love them. And so they were, which is great when your kids are excited to be babysat. Anyway, uh, I said, one of us will be back by 10.30. One of us, Maddie, (laughs) will be back by 10.30. Monica said, that's a bit early. And I said, oh, well, like 10.30. But I'm like, we'll try. I know that you're really tired and you've had a big week. I appreciate you doing this. Like, we'll try to, we'll get home by 10.30. Me and Matt go and have a great time. See all our friends. Drank all the booze you know, ate all the food, talking, hanging out. I look and I we never sorted with each other who was watching the oh. time. <laughs> and because we weren't paying for the time, I think we didn't have, you know, that extra motivation. And I looked down at my phone and it was 20 past 11 and I had a text from Candace that had come through at 11 p.m. saying, hey, mate, not a no big rush, but when are you getting home? Because one of us has to get home to our dog. Oh, and I'd missed it and like just hadn't responded and hadn't turned up. And I was like, Matt, Matt, get we have to go. It's 20 past 11. He's like, It's 20 past 11. I'm like, It's 20 past 11. Candace messaged at 11 and I didn't respond. Um, I messaged her obviously straight away and got home, and poor Monica is sitting there at like 10 to midnight by herself. So tired, so lovely, but, yeah, pretty um, oh. bad behaviour <laughs> me and Matt. I would have felt like such rubbish in the cab home. Oh, yeah, totally. That's and I was so, but she, I was so apologetic and she was so cool about it. But Candace and Monica are getting taken out to a very nice dinner in the next <laughs> month. So don't worry. We are redeeming ourselves. Glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, well, my folks were visiting Sydney, which is always – I always love it when people come to visit me in Sydney because then I do the touristy things. And I'm like, this is beautiful. And it was supposed to be miserable weather, but Sydney really turned it on. And one of the things we did is that, like I mentioned last week on the episode, that I was going to go see The Weeknd, the play, the adaptation of Charlotte Wood's novel. Oh, yes. And it was so fucking good. Really, really good. Extraordinarily cast. There, There's this sort of, in the book, there's this really like geriatric dog called Finn who's like can't really control his bladder and is past the point in time where I think most people would agree it's like kind to say goodbye. But for many reasons, the character who owns Finn is like attached to him and won't let go. And the the woman who operated the this, it was like one of those extraordinary kind of puppets on stage. Oh, wow. Where you just basically choose to suspend your disbelief and the puppeteer makes it easy for you to do so because the figure of the dog is so real, like the way it moves. And it it was perfectly done. Um, But the other thing was that, you know, it's a play a lot about mortality and about whether or not people are different people at different stages are like terrified of death or accepting that that's like the one, the single thing we all have in common. And, And we had to, it's supposed to be a one act play and we had to stop partway through and have an sort of forced slash incidental intermission because a woman in the audience, like an older woman in the audience was having a cardiac event. Oh, I thought you were going to say was crying too much. No. And it was, it made the whole thing feel like for me watching so much more high stakes and intense and 
yeah, just real than other than I think it otherwise would that have. That is crazy. Were there doctors or nurses around in the yeah, audience? Yeah, we had to well, we had to clear out of the um, seats so that paramedics could come in. And we, yeah, just had this kind of, they were like, all right, intermission, we'll just have an intermission, which was the exact right way to handle it. But, yeah, that was my, yeah, like live theatre experience. And it was live theatre brush with mortality. Yeah. and it, But it also reminded me of what is special about live theatre, which is that anything could happen because it's actually in front of you with real human beings right there and then. There's an immediacy and an undeniable kind of risk there for both the performer and the audience in some kind of uniquely exhilarating way. And it but can also absorb you. It, what's amazing about theatre is that it can absorb you in a way that it's all totally believable. Like yes. there are so many – when the, when theatre is great, you don't think I'm sitting here watching people say their lines. Yes. Like you truly believe I'm sitting here watching yeah. four women or three women with this geriatric dog. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I really hope I get to see that because I loved the novel. It's finishing soon. You need to get, get my done. free babysitters around. <laughs> free? Are you free? <laughs> yeah, I'll babysit your kids. I like your kids. All right, what have you been reading? This week I read this extraordinary book. It's a short book. Uh, I read that is short. Sorry, just for people yeah. who are listening. That's small. It's that's- 150 pages. So it's almost like an extended essay. It's called The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela by Sasanki Masaimang. And I know Sasanki. She lives in Perth. She's South African. And um, she actually grew up in exile. Oh, wow. And has written an extraordinary memoir about that. And she lives in Perth and she's an amazing writer and I really like her as a person and I'm just making my way through her work. And I didn't know that much about Winnie Mandela and I actually don't know that much about South African history. Like we all know about apartheid. Mm. but we, On like a kind of surface level. Yeah, and like, we were kids. Yes. When yeah. we, it was 1994. I feel like what went down. a lot of millennials would have is like having done it for one or two weeks in modern history. Yes, and we all know who Nelson Mandela is yes. and the photo of him walking out of the prison. So this is just about Winnie and it was actually a really extraordinary book to read after reading Wifedom. Yeah. And, you know, the erasure of George L. Orwell's wife and this book really illuminates Winnie's role in freedom and the end of apartheid and how she was firstly known as Nelson Mandela's wife, but was actually an extraordinary freedom fighter in her own right, an extraordinary act, like civil rights activist who also did some terrible things. And Sasanki does not shy away from that. And I so appreciated this portrait of this really complex woman that did not look away from the messiness of her and added to this story or like showed the truth of the story. We have this story about, I think a lot of people have this story about the way that apartheid ended in this peaceful way Mm. and it was um, extraordinary acts of humanity. Well, actually the reality is a lot messier than that and a lot of people died and a lot of people died in cruel ways and the truth of that has to be reckoned with and the way you can reckon with the truth is through the story of Winnie Mandela, an extraordinary woman, as is Sasanki, and really beautifully written. And one of the things that she pulled off here, which I so rarely see, is a, most of it is written in the second person. Wow. Yeah, which is like a really interesting creative decision and one that usually is not pulled off. Usually if I read something in the second person, I stop like a third of the way through. I didn't – I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, Rebecca Mackay's book, I Have Some Questions For You, is written fantastically in a very specific type of second person. Oh, really? Yeah. and I – like she pulled it off in a way that I also felt was rare. Oh, yeah, what a, what a difficult thing to do. Anyway, can't – and so you learn so much about Winnie and it was amazing to read about her as her own person, not just Nelson Mandela's wife. And, God, she had a hard life and – she was, you know, she she grew up in a South Africa where something like less than fourteen percent of Black South Africans knew how to read, and her parents taught her how to read. That in itself is what set her on the track for this extraordinary life. And it was just, you know, it's a small part of the book, but also a reminder of how completely transformative that can be. Mm. Just just literacy. Highly recommend. It was. When did read, this come out? 
A few years ago, so I picked this up when I went to see Sasanki talk at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, where she did an amazing lecture called Precious White Lives, which you can find in on I think it's the ABC's podcast feed. Yep. We have to put this in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. It is an yeah. extraordinary lecture. Okay, I'm opening it up. It was published in 2018. Wow. So just after Winnie died. Well, all right. Yep. So so that I guess was the impetus for it, but. You know, Sasanki is such an incredible writer and like such a great intellect. Yeah, the way that she deals with all the I- issues around the violence, especially, is amazing and just really interesting. I just love learning a bit about a history that I don't know that much about as well. Yeah, fantastic. I have been reading this new release. It's by Elise Lunan. It's called "On Our Best Behavior," and the subtitle is "The Price Women Pay to Be Good." What? Most people know Elise Lunan for. She's a New York Times bestselling author and has done a great many things. And in, she runs the Pulling the Thread podcast, which is fantastic. And she has an excellent Substack shout out called Pulling the Thread as well. What most people know her for is that she, for a long time, was a big p- player, I don't know, employee at Goop, the Gwyneth Paltrow's Gwyneth- lifestyle brand. Yes. And. I was curious about how somebody who for so many years was a part of that crowd would then do what I consider to be a sort of full 180 and write a book about how women are trapped by expectations of sort of goodness, perfection, high achieving morality, et cetera. And aesthetics. Aesthetic, yeah. And aesthetics is one part of it. But what is interesting is that Lunan has framed this book, has sort of chosen this structure where she steps through the seven deadly sins and the eighth that actually got historically left off for interesting reasons, which was sadness. So it's lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride, and sadness. Did sadness get left off because it's not fun like all the other ones? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not going to go into that because there are like interesting historical reasons, but for why it got left off, which are related to the fact, which I didn't even know this, that the seven deadly sins are not even scripture. Like they're not, like they don't come from like the, the Bible. Bible or Jesus. I knew that. Uh, well, I don't know anything about I'm a good Catholic. Jesus stuff. <laughs> anyway, it's fantastic. And in a huge get, Elise is in Australia touring her book and I will be interviewing her for the podcast this afternoon. I can't wait to listen to. I am so excited. I've been doing my research because I'm a good girl on brand and I've been listening to the interviews she's given on a number of other podcasts and she is a huge fucking brain, one of those people who you could just listen to for hours and hours and hours. Did she say that there was an impetus for her leaving Goop and having this supposed, this 180? Okay, interestingly, I am not allowed to ask her explicitly about her departure from Goop and she has chosen pretty consistently to not let that be like a huge framing of her touring this book and talking about it. But what she is open about in like a sort of forward slash introduction to this. She'd reach a point in her life where she ticked all of these boxes of like external markers of success. She's, you know, extraordinarily motivated and high achieving and does all this great work. And she had this great marriage and these great kids, but was having these hectic, quite specific versions of kind of anxiety symptoms where she like couldn't, it was, it's called chronic hyperventilation. She couldn't take a deep breath ever unless she yawned. And she'd had it a bit on and off in her twenties. And then it just got to this obviously like breaking point. And rather than like, I'm not bummed that I can't uh, like what grill her about her departure from goop. I think the incredible legwork she has done in researching this book and laying out her thoughts and feelings means like this work speaks for itself and speaks to the pivot she has done both personally and professionally. And when I was reading one of the chapters in particular, it made me really want to ask you specifically a question. Oh, here we go. Yep. I love it when you surprise me on air. Yeah, here we go. Because you are like the most well-adjusted person I know and the only millennial (laughs) I've ever met who doesn't have anxiety. (laughs) I want to know, do you ever or frequently experience envy? Ooh, good question. 
Yes, absolutely. Yes, I do experience envy for sure and resentment. Okay, so they are like very close to each other. They're like definitely uh, related feelings. For people listening, I needed a refresher on this. The difference, the basic difference between jealousy and envy is that jealousy requires a third party. Like you're afraid that somebody will take something from you and what most of us would be most familiar, like the scenario most of us are most familiar with is being jealous of a partner who you suspect or are afraid is like going off with someone else. But envy is like you and one other person and you want what they have, you resent that they have it and to some, to varying degrees, you want it for yourself and or you just want to take it away from them or for them to not have it. Oh, yes. Okay, my envy is quite specific. (laughs) Uh, My envy is around money. Yeah. And property. Property. And especially in the past few years, people being able to buy houses that fit their family. That's what I have envy. And I, I can actually get it quite bad. It can be in a like I'm I hope I'm not making it sound right like me being righteous because I'm not being righteous like it is a bad trait of mine that I get envy around that and I just think when I see and then my friends my friends buying houses for various reasons whether they you know my older friends who got into the market 15 years ago Mm. when it was a much more sane market and so were therefore able just to save buy some buy a little house that increased in value massively and now they've been able to buy a bigger house or friends who have got help from their parents in buying house, which is so fair enough. Like, you know, of course, if a parent can help their child buy a house, why wouldn't you? Like, mm. of course you want to help your child that way. But, yeah, I can get it bad. I, you know, I can just think they don't deserve that any more than I do. Mm. <laughs> and I, I want that. Yeah. And it consumes me so much where we are going to live in the next 10 years. I think you should tell people who haven't read Trivial Grievances about like you live in a house that currently fits you and your two you and your partner and your two kids like that's your family unit the four of you and you have a small apartment that you have a mortgage on but you had to then go and rent out a house that would actually yeah, so, fit your so family. We, so we rent a house and own an apartment. Yeah. And one another way the children have ruined my life. <laughs> no, my children have not ruined my life, but I do think, like, it is another example of um, I can absolutely understand why other people decide not to have children because of property and because of where they're going to live, especially in the current climate, because we would fit in the apartment if we didn't have the children. But we probably might have to fit back into the apartment next year, I'm not sure, because our rent got put up $100 a week. Fuck your landlord. Uh, anyway, yeah. yeah. The reason I ask. So, that, so that's why I'm yeah. obsessed with it, like, the, yeah, and have the – and I'm in such a privileged position. Like, the house that I rent, I, like, I love that house and yeah. it's great to be able to rent that house and, um, you know, and to have the apartment is amazing as well. Like, and I have an enormous privilege around that and I know that. But, yeah, my envy is definitely around – people being able to own the place they fit in with their family. family. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting, I don't want this to turn into some like couch psychology session, but what's really interesting is that like you sound a lot f- further forward than a lot of other people are in realising that what Lewin talks about in this book is like if you're un- if you're willing to actually sit in your envy, it can be a really valuable tool to tell you what you want. And that there's this weird thing where women in particular feel so much shame anytime they have feelings of envy that they either act out on them in really weird and strange ways and they manifest in really weird and strange ways or they just sort of try and swallow them and, you know, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's coming from from somewhere. And envy can actually useful, if you're like willing to look at it usefully, can like help you clarify what you want from your life or what you think is missing in your life. Yeah, what's missing in my life? Is stable housing. <laughs> housing. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I don't know, it's true. Anyway, the reason I asked you is because I only very, very recently had a f- my first like real, real feeling of envy towards someone or something. For the most part, I'm quite proud of my ability to just genuinely be stoked when my friends and people around me get good things. My brilliant 
and lovely friend Lech, who you know, Lech Blaine. Yeah. Yeah. He recently won the Judy Harris Fellowship at the Charles Perkins Institute, which gives you a year of writing access to these like extraordinary scientists who work at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Institute and $100,000. Whoa. And I had this weird flare up and like I I think Lech is a brilliant writer and I have so much professional admiration for him and as a human being I have found, always found him a kind friend and I don't want to take it from him and I am thrilled for him but there was something going on where him getting that made me like panicked and insecure and in a way that I've never felt before. And it's like, it's some version of envy. So then I was reading this book by Lunan and I was like, okay, well, what does it tell you about yourself? And I was like, yeah, it tells me that I want a hundred thousand yeah. bucks. <laughs> I didn't need to excavate that far down yeah. to realize. But then I was like, no, if it was just about winning a hundred thousand bucks, if like if I found out Lek won a lottery ticket for a hundred thousand bucks, I wouldn't feel quite this way. This is something different. And I realized it's because I'm fucking insecure about like how much other random shit I do instead of like what I truly love and care about and what I feel is my art, which is writing my book. And that sort of the prestige and kudos of that award has bought Lek is at least 12 months of uninterrupted working on your book time. And, like, in my mind that is you actually, like, can't, although it, the price on that is literally $100,000, you sort of can't put a price on that. True. And to have that writing time would be incredible. I am envious of being able to have that writing time and it would be great to have that year, but you can't have your whole life be writing time. I know. You need to be out yeah. in the real world. And yeah. Jennifer Down, who won the Miles Franklin mm. last year for Bodies of Light, an extraordinary book, I was listening to her in an interview, which I will try to um, link in the show notes, talking about her belief that writers need to have another job. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Yeah, and you need to be out in the real world. It's how, like, you get your work done. So what it would be incredible to have that year, but – you also need to go back out into the real world and have a different job or do different things as well. You can't just sit unless you're Ann Patchett. No, Ann Patchett's got another job. Yeah. She works in she a bookshop. Book yeah. Which is like such a good job for a writer yeah. to have. I, I but you need you need yeah. to be out doing yeah. actual work at times. Yeah. This leads perfectly to one of our big topics of conversation this week, which I saw people getting really heated about on Twitter in particular. 60 Minutes did an interview with former Teal staffer Sally Rugg based around how millennials in particular, but I think it goes for everyone who is working at the moment, overworking in Australia and how many hours, unpaid hours of overtime Australians do in general. I think this flared people up because it was like along such generational lines. Yes, but and then I, if you listen to the full interview, they they did try to get her to say. Yeah, they were trying to get her to give spicy sound bites, yeah, and she uh, was and, not playing and to that say game. something disparaging about boomers, and she didn't. She's like, I think it's I admire boomers for how hard they've worked, and I think they did work very hard. That is a fact, but it's also a fact that millennials are not getting the same things that boomers got for working as hard. Like you can work hard and 70 hours a week and not save a house deposit, yep. for instance. But she had interesting stats in there. Four million Australians work more than 45 hours a week, two million more than 50, and one million more than 60. I thought that was really high. That surprised me how many yeah. are doing more than 60 hours a week. There was also a – I just screenshotted this. <laughs> Sally tweeted – like quote tweeted someone else and what she quote quoted up top was just pick up some extra shifts and the upside down smiley face. And she's quoting a tweet that explains that in 2020, the average first home buyer deposit was $108,000. And just like two to three years later, it was $159,000. Oh my God. So a 50% increase. So it's like On gone an already from, massive deposit. Yeah, so it's gone from 100 and a bit to 150 and a bit. Like- almost 160 in two years. Like, so it's just this generational thing, like you said, where it's not the case that boomers didn't work hard. It's just that it doesn't matter how hard millennials work, the ratio of income work to what you need. Again, like every fucking conversation we have about inequality comes in Australia comes back to housing. Yes. 
housing is the big and cost of living are the big stories of this year. It's also interesting to think about culturally how attitudes to work have changed over the past few decades because I feel like 10 years ago or 15 years ago there was real like hustle grind mindset and it was lauded in pop culture that, you know, to work really hard said something about your character. Yeah. Like it, it, it was tied in with your – if you worked a lot, it was tied in with your character. It showed positive attributes about you and if you – didn't want to do all the overtime, you could be characterised as lazy. And I think that there's been a correction happening on that in the past few years. And I've certainly seen it in my industry in the past 17 years where it used to be so normal to do hours and hours of unpaid overtime, you know, finish your work day when the work finished, which at times in different journalism jobs, especially with the advent of online meant that you could be starting at 8am and not finishing until 9 or 10 at night. And that's still actually quite usual in press galleries. But I've really noticed in the past five years how, especially seeing younger people like um, the generation below millennials come into the workforce and how they really take a stand against it. And Mm. they won't do hours of overtime if they're not going to get it back as time in lieu or if they're not going to get paid for it. And they won't work all this overtime for working overtime's sake. And I really respect it. And I think that another big aspect of overwork and work burnout in the past decade or so has been freaking bane of my existence emails on the phone. Yeah. I noticed with some professions is they get they can't take their work home, usually the most useful professions. <laughs> <laughs> I.e. like, you know, nurses, I. cleaners. Not us. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, not us. <laughs> but you know, they finish their shift and they leave and there's not Mm. much more, like there's nothing else to do. You can't keep looking after your patient at home, et cetera, et cetera. You can't clean, you know, someone else's house if you're at your own home. You can't educate young children if they yeah. return to their or, Although they do a lot of work at home with all their marking and stuff that teaches it doesn't get done in work hours. But having email on the phone just I has, and I when I started we didn't have email on our phone, so I've really noticed the impact of it in journalism in particular. You're just like always on or and if not expected to respond, at least have the expectation on yourself that you respond. And I find myself checking my work emails, you know, after dinner, before I go to bed. And it is just another way of having like work in your mind and another thing that can add to burnout and overwork. Okay. I'm going to read a paragraph from On Our Best Behavior by Elise Lunan that like I just had dog-eared anyway, because it so much speaks to this. It's about this thing. And I've when you're talking about before this, like the the peak of hustle culture, I struggle with that hugely. And I have been self-employed now for like seven years, maybe eight or whatever, just like my own boss having like five jobs at a time. And I used to wear it really as like a point of pride that people would call me like the busiest person they knew or like the most productive person they knew. And in the last sort of year or two, I realized that I wanted for myself and for my like sort of family of two people plus a dog to take weekends off. And it has been difficult. This is like six or seven years of doing things one way, unlearning it has taken so much time. And interestingly, switching off push notifications from emails on my mobile was an absolute breakthrough. And I now have the only things on my phone that will send me notifications now are WhatsApp, texts, and calls. Nothing else comes through. I've also turned off notifications for so much. I've turned off Insta notifications, which isn't even to do with my work, but it's just to stop you picking up your phone or engaging immediately. And people message, I've turned off notifications for Twitter. I've turned off email notifications only this year have I turned off email notifications. And doesn't it change your weekend? It changes my weekend. It does. It changes my weekend. It changes my evening a lot. I'm still checking emails a bit, but it changes my evening a lot and just the impulse to pick up the phone or that feeling of I've got to doing one thing say cooking dinner seeing the email and then you start thinking about what you're going to yeah respond anyway I'm going to read this bit because it talks about that like protestant work ethic which where like working hard equals goodness which is definitely a kool-aid I just fucking 
guzzled for my whole 20s. My brother jokes about us having Catholic work ethic. What does that mean? <laughs> we love to have fun. <laughs> Catholic work ethic is having a sick one. Yeah. Well, going hard at work and then having a sick one yeah. in the rest of your life. Okay. I really like, so this is, sorry to everyone listening, I got distracted. This is from page 32 of On Our Best Behavior. I find this fascinating. Early Protestants believed that grace, which would ensure salvation, came from hard and diligent work. Economist Max Weber credits this idea as being the foundation of capitalism. A time card punching working class supervised by salaried managerial overlords defined early capitalism. But these days, almost all of us participate in an economy that measures us by output. The computers of white collar VPs are increasingly surveyed with productivity tools that track desktop activity and moments when the mouse lies dormant. Your time belongs to your employer. The early promise of technology was to improve efficiency and to liberate us from constant toil. In reality, it's done the opposite. The idea of fallow time, creative time, time for sitting and thinking or for visiting with an office mate suggests that you're not maximizing your yield, that there's room to give or do more. And you should do more, we're told, because through the grace of work, you'll climb a mountain built from your talent and then be able to look back and survey the summation of your life, your worth. This is one of my biggest bugbears, that technology should be meaning that we work less yeah. and be having a sick one and we've just become enslaved to it and made it made us work more. And in the extreme, this is what I think we're seeing with the what we saw in the extreme protests borderline turning into rioting in Paris because technological advancements mean that we can live longer than before. Instead of that meaning that we can have more time to rest at the end of our lives and more time with loved ones in our later years, it just means that we're supposed to work more and more and more. And for every increased year in average age of mortality, you just have an increased year of work. Before, yeah, before you before can get the can pension. Get the we, and such a, and it, they're so bad, almost every government at drawing distinctions between white-collar workers and blue-collar workers when it comes to pension age as well because mm. there are some jobs that you could, well, you sh- everyone just has the right to rest yeah. and should have the right to their leisure time, obviously, and to end their work life and enjoy the rest of their life. But also there's the reality that there are some jobs, a lot of jobs that you just can't physically keep doing. Doing, yeah, yeah. That you ruin your body for. But I like. Like me and my computer. (laughs) Ruining my body. (laughs) My brother actually rang me this morning. It's funny, we're talking about work because he rang me this morning and I said, I'm actually super busy. I'm just, I'm I'm on the way to like the third job that I'm doing, third different job that I'm doing this week. (laughs) And Seamus goes, who's a nurse? Friday, just because you're sitting down in a different room doesn't mean you're working. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's my reality check. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I I don't know how to work less, though. I don't know. I, I struggle with the feelings of worth. And it's it's hard when you work for yourself because in a very real way, every extra hour I work does make me more money. And in a way that I really appreciate and like, everything I invest is like, building something by me and for me, I know for a fact, without a doubt, that I would never work as hard as I do right now if I was employed by someone else. Don't you think that's really dependent on who's employing you? Like if it's a company or a job that you feel has a lot of social worth? I think think it can depend on the job and if you feel that you're contributing to something bigger or there's real like worth or you oh, know, yeah, the organisation true. that you're working for makes a difference in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's like a kind of – if there were – if there was some sort of altruistic or sort of deep human moral satisfaction yeah. component. Which is a way that a lot of those organisations get their employees to work a lot yeah, because, of the, because of the moral component to it and the feeling that you're – contributing something to society. Mm. It's also like the worth thing I think is also difficult in both of our jobs, various jobs and careers, because a lot of what we get to do is creative as well. And it's, it's hard. And so it does feel like an expression of self and then that, and then you're getting paid for it. And then that's also how your sense of worth gets all wrapped up in your job. Yeah, definitely. All of this (laughs) exhaustion leads us to one of the other things that was hugely doing the rounds this week 
spicy opinions about people, whether or not you should co-sleep with children and just sleep habits, sleep issues, sleep hygiene. Sleep in general. People love talking about sleep, how they get to sleep, when's the best sleep, why they had a bad sleep. But really, and anyone who is like, I, you know, a lot of shift workers, everyone can know this, but particularly when you've had small children, that is a really big realisation about how sleep can absolutely ruin your life. Mm. It's not kids that ruin your life. It's the sleep they take away from you that ruin your life. And the times that I have felt most mentally unstable and most vulnerable have been the times in my life when that sleep has been taken away from me. But I'm actually an amazing sleeper. I probably, you're not surprised to learn. I'm looking at your face. (laughs) How do I go to sleep at night? I lie down in my big bed and close my eyes and go to sleep. Yeah, I'm afraid. I can like I can sleep almost anywhere in a way that I don't talk about much publicly because it sounds like I'm bragging. Yeah, well, yeah, there's like a, there is a value judgment on on it, isn't there? Like an element of it. There was this article in particular which we'll link in the show notes called "Co-sleeping with Children Has Biological Benefits." but it's not always the answer to a good night's sleep. And it's by Sarah Blunden. And it actually goes into, it's not just about co-sleeping with children. It actually goes into a bit about the history of sleep, which I found so fascinating. And in medieval England, sleep was a social and communal practice. Mm. So passing travellers would sleep in the same bed or room with you. And Mm. visitors, if you had visitors, they would just sleep with you, which my family is still doing to an extent. Like if enough of us are home at the same time, brothers and sisters will will sleep with each other Mm. and share beds. And my siblings have all shared beds with my kids. It was only in the 15th century that separate sleeping rooms really took off and was seen as a sign of wealth. Mm. If you had somewhere to sleep that was separate to the rest of the house and then and even separate to the rest of your family, which I guess is how we've got to where we are today in the Western world where children, I think it's even becoming less of a trend for children to share bedrooms now. Like I see so many people yeah. having separate rooms for children, particularly past the age of 10. And it's a huge topic in like the inverted commas, like mummy online communities co-sleeping. Yeah, I don't even... I'm not even really a member of those places and I know that co-sleeping gets people fucking upset. Yeah, yeah. Well, like co-sleeping or not co-sleeping. And I don't even know which one you're supposed to according to whom. Oh, it it depends on who you're talking to about whether it's evil or essential. I found my experience with sleep and my kids has been that I have done every single thing. Like I, you've tried the, you've tried them all. I've, you do them all. Like if you're not ideological yeah. about it, I think this is the experience of a lot of parents. We've done, we've done crying it out, which is controversial, but absolutely worked for my first child. I did co-sleeping. You know, when they were babies, if they would fall asleep in the bed, if that was the only way. Particularly with my oldest, he was the problem sleeper. Yeah, he was allowed to sleep in my bed, and then would get moved to his own room. He was put in his own room because he was such a loud sleeper, and like would always wake us. <laughs> up, which is like controversial whether you have them in the room or not. We did crying it out. We did co-sleeping. I did feeding to sleep, which is like, honestly, any aspect of getting your kid to sleep, there is like an ideology around it. I didn't buy into a lot of it. I was fine doing whatever Mm. worked, but I kind of knew that I did want them to sleep in there. I would prefer them to sleep in their own beds. And they were actually pretty, both of my boys were pretty good at that. Until the last year for some reason and they've made their way into my bed. What? Yes. My bed, which they don't even refer to as mum and dad's bed, they refer to it as mum's bed because of how much they have booted my husband out in the middle of the night. Oh, Maddie. Yeah, so they come in and also it's just so easy to do because, like, it's the middle of the night and you know they're going to go to sleep and they come in and they want to sleep with you and you go, okay, get in. Sleeping with kids is insane how much room they take up. They will sleep nose to nose with you. <laughs> they will breathe all over Sounds you. Sounds like a dog. Yeah, they like- move around. They put their foot in your spine. And at first when they were coming in, it was only a little bit. Hamish would sometimes come in and I and I would think, this is so sweet, especially if it was a Saturday morning and we were waking up slowly together and you would like chat or I would like look at him sleeping. and Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, you just love your kids so much when they're asleep. <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute. And I was like, this is sweet. He's not going to sleep with me forever. Like, you know, it's not really a big deal. And, you know, the other bed that Matt was going to is very comfortable. So Matt was getting a fine night's sleep 
Oh, somehow it's evolved into every single night both of the boys come into the bed at some point. And I do not know how we are going to break this habit. Me and Matt are so beaten down. <laughs> and, but I, and I have wondered a lot about the science of it, yeah. like why children want to sleep with their parents so much. Yeah. I think it's just simple mammal stuff. But also and like, wanting to feel body warms in the middle of the night. But what yeah. that article pointed out was that the them sleeping separately is the new thing. Yeah, like, exactly. That it's just there's clearly something sort of human. About yeah, it. and yeah. sleeping with your young. And I thought about it a bit, and I thought adults, when they have the choice, mostly sleep with another adult. Yeah, and like also, most couples share a bed, so we don't we don't really actually expect if you if you're in a relationship or live with another adult. We wouldn't. Ex- we think it's strange when people have separate bedrooms, and we wouldn't expect them to sleep alone. But we expect little kids to sleep alone. The one thing I have an extremely strong opinion about is snoring. I find it absolutely fucking bonkers how many couples will have. So, cup. There's a couple. Person A and person B. Person A is a snorer, and it means that person B can't sleep properly. Person A is causing the problem. Person A needs to leave and, like, find a solution. Like, how it's acceptable to me that so many couples will just have person B who's not sleeping properly and can't get a good night's sleep and that sleep deprivation is literally torture and it's, like, not – the person causing the problem needs to sort the problem or leave the room. Go to the doctor, which is usually the the man in a a heterosexual relationship. I'm sorry, it's a part of it. Like, that it's – it really makes me livid how many, and it can be like it's, you know, snoring is gender neutral, but often in my experience when I hear couples talk, it is just that the woman is sort of kind of implicitly expected to sort of just put up with chronic under-restedness because the dude snores as soon as he goes to sleep. And, and it's fucked. And won't go to the doctor or won't sleep go to the in doctor. another room. I, yeah, I have very, very strong opinions about this. No one can function at their best and no one can be as happy as they might otherwise be if they are not getting a proper night's sleep. It is cruel and selfish. And I'll cut a minute. <laughs> okay. But, like, yeah, it, it just fucking baffles me and it makes me furious. Well, it's okay to snore. The The issue is if you're waking the other person up. up yeah. But so we, I think we both snore, but we're both deep sleepers, so we don't wake each yeah, other up. Yeah, that's fine. Well, yeah. bless bless you. <laughs> bless you. I only get woken by the little face at the at the bed, all of it. Mom, are you awake? <laughs> what about now? <laughs> yeah, I'm just poking you. Yeah, oh, I'm pulling my eyelids <laughs> open. Are you awake? No. All right. No, apart get from lost. further sleep deprivation, what have you got coming up this week? Well, I'm not going to another wedding. <laughs> I've had two this month. Oh, I'm going to a Korean spa to get a full body scrub, which I've never done Scoozy. before. Yeah, in Chatswood. Wow. Oh, nice. And I've known about it. I've been meaning to go for years and I've never gone. Helen Garner references it in her diary. She loved to do it in Sydney. When she lived in Sydney, would go to the Korean spa and get full body scrub down. And I'm finally doing it this weekend. Mm, when I was in Turkey, I went to a legit, full-on legit hammam and had the full body like wash down and it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, I can't wait to come out so relaxed and silky smooth to race home by 4.30 to make sure Maddie can go watch the footy. (laughs) (laughs) A beautiful day of tag teaming. (laughs) Uh, Well, this afternoon, as I mentioned, I will be interviewing Elise Lunan. Stick around and hear that. So our original plan was to run the author interview straight on after Bridie and I's chat, but I interviewed Elise and it was too good. We were talking for over an hour. So here's a exciting little excerpt and please come back on Wednesday where you can hear the full interview between myself and Elise Lunan about her extraordinary book. Hi, Elise. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you to your partner, wherever she is, for letting me take her seat. <laughs> it's 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 so exciting to get to speak to you. I know you've only been in the country a couple of days. Welcome. Thank you. I'm going to stay forever. Do you, you love it here? It's wonderful. Oh, you guys, you know, I think you know what you're doing here. Clearly. Everyone's so nice and warm and relaxed. Sydney has turned it on for you, I will say, oh. it, weather-wise. Yeah. <laughs> Spring has sprung. It's beautiful. I actually want to start with the subtitle because I noticed that in America it explicitly, the subtitle includes a reference to the seven yeah. deadly sins. Yeah. Do you think that's 
I mean, there's the whole marketing thing, which is not as interesting to me about Australia being a more secular audience. But maybe for people who have not heard of the book or are not familiar, can you explain that that yeah. premise? Yeah. So as you mentioned in America, it is the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be, get, be good. And they create the superstructure of the book. So each chapter is about a sin. And to remind you what they are, it is sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And I needed a reminder. I just, for context, did not grow up in a religious household. I um, would never have thought that these sins applied to me or I didn't subscribe to them. I didn't choose to abide by them. I, um, you know, had vague, vague ideas of what they were. But when I started working on this book, on this quest for what is it about women and this quote-unquote goodness that we try to subscribe to culturally, where did this come from? Mm. And that's where I landed was that was the checklist, the seven deadly sins, in a way that sent chills up and down my spine because a full body recognition a full body recognition and also sort of that a recognition and then also that revelation which i think we all know is true but that these systems that we don't necessarily consciously choose circumscribe and define our lives in ways that we're not always aware of and it's not always it's not always an option to just opt out Oh, it's not an option at all. Culture is so contagious. It's a virus that we whisper into each other's ears. It's incredibly hard to rail against it, one, to identify it even, and then to say, I do not choose to participate. And the argument of the book is that in our quest for quote-unquote goodness, which is how we have endured in a culture not built for women in, in our patriarchy, that we uphold these ideas of what it is to be a good woman, and then we police each other as well. And, you know, and a good woman is a woman who needs no rest, has no wants and desires, no, has no appetite, needs no recognition or praise or affirmation, and is never upset about any of it. Never hungry, never upset. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I got so much out of even the introduction, the foreword to your book. I've chosen three of the sins that I want to focus on because otherwise we could be here. Yeah, for well, we'd be here for a really long a time. Long time. <laughs> but actually, before we do that, I have a couple of questions about sort of your work. Something I'm always really interested in, I've been writing full time now for eight years and I do a lot of, I'm fortunate, I love this part of my job to get to speak to other authors from around the world. And something I'm always curious about when I get to talk to someone such as yourself who is very successful. You've co-written multiple New York Times bestsellers. You have a fantastic podcast called Pulling the Thread and shout out to fellow Substacker, a newsletter with the same name. You could have written any book. What I'm always curious to hear and I would love to hear you speak to is why this book and mm. why now? Yeah. So I have co-written 12 books. I started in my 20s as a way to make extra money and was convinced until three years ago, four years ago, that I really didn't have a book in me. What? Really? <laughs> I know. I just hadn't. I never, for whatever reason, I think it's because growing up, I grew up in a rural state in America and Montana. Books were my best friend. We all know that story. In general, I had such deep reverence for writers mm. that I just couldn't define myself as a writer. And I think because I grew up in service journalism and I never really let myself go on a page. In an interview, you said that for most of your career, you never had your own bylines. You always no. wrote under the just the sort of that anonymized mm -hmm. editorial yeah. headline. Yeah. Yeah. I liked, and I liked that. I worked at a magazine without bylines, Lucky Magazine. I worked at Goop where um, we were almost entirely anonymous. No one would have known that I even worked there except that we launched a podcast and then there was a TV show and 
So that's how I, um, you know, was pushed out of hiding. But I very much preferred, or I would have said that I preferred, I think I just felt safer, um, which I write about in the chapter on pride. And I know tall poppy syndrome is a big thing in Australia. Cute. It's on my list of questions. Okay. Yeah, we'll get there. So it was just incredibly difficult for me to own this wanting of wanting to write my own book. And for anyone who's listening, I'll say, one, I know how hard it is to write a book. It's much easier to ghostwrite and co-write and help other people get their ideas down on the page. It's very difficult to write your own book and be close to the subject for a long amount of time by yourself. But there are lots of small books in the world, you know, like very small, specific topics. And it's so much work. And it's so hard Mm. that I wanted to wait until I felt like I had sort of a boil the ocean idea and questions that I could wrestle with for years and then talk about Mm. for years. Because you're in this process for a long time. I don't think people realize. I've been thinking about this since 2019. And I'll still be talking about this book, hopefully, in the years to come. But honestly, more than that, it was my agent – shaking me. She had taken me on when I was, you know, 22, just doing these um, ghostwriting deals for me out of the truly the kindness of her heart, because it's not (laughs) good money. But um, she was like, what are you doing? Mm. You know, stop it. And I really had this come to sort of Jesus with myself. And as soon as I opened up the, myself to the idea that I would write a book, once I found the question I wanted to wrestle to the ground, it happened. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. Something I think a lot of people struggle with is waiting for somebody to either invite them or shove them yeah. to to go for such a huge solo project yeah. themselves. Yeah. But really, you want to choose a question. If you're, if you're writing nonfiction that you can imagine wrestling with and tussling with for years Mm. that's a fire, that's something that you really want to get your arms around. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, you could have started with lust or wrath. Why start with sloth? Because I don't know any woman who does not feel like she should always be doing more. I look around at all of my mates and there, I just see this sea of women fucking kicking ass, yep. taking names day after day after day. And I love them so much and I'm so proud of them. And I, I, I'm glad that I live in a time and a place where we can celebrate each other's ambition and each other's mm-hmm. wins. But I also, because I know them well, I know that they are exhausted. Yes. And I know that they are wrecked. And I know in myself as well that the drive is not always coming from a positive place. No, no. I describe it as my internal cattle prod, you know, and I think that Australian audiences will resonate with that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I, you know, my husband said to me, you know, in in the time that we've been married, you haven't been able to sit and watch a TV show with me for more than 20 minutes. Meanwhile, my husband just like wears grooves into the couch with his butt. Like he's such a good relaxer and he's really good at doing that with our children. Whereas I, you know, I'm up, I'm getting my computer, I'm multitasking, I'm loading the dishwasher. I'm just like this idea that I'm not doing enough is such a plague. And for a long time, for most of my life, you know, I look at all the data. I recognize that women are doing both more at the office and at home than men. It's pretty – the statistics are staggering and they're not really improving despite the conversation that we're having about it. And what I had to face, which is uncomfortable, is that, you know, I grew up in a progressive family. My husband's a feminist. I'm the primary breadwinner. And he's not insisting that our house be spotless – and organized. He's not asking for home-cooked meals every night, much less ever. Nobody is putting this pressure on me except for myself trying to abide by the standards that 
we recognize as what it is to be a good woman, a good mother, a good partner. It's come back. It comes back to that thing though about how you can't just opt out. No, you can't understand it on a sort of academic, rational level, and therefore be free. Yeah, it's in the air. It's in the air, and I was enforcing it on myself as much as I was railing against it. And it's very. This book is very much. You know, and this is tricky because I don't want to, you know, blame victims here. But it was very much taking, sort of, being someone who could rail against the system. And yes, let's rail against the system. And in America, it's like Mitch McConnell, not my favorite guy, right? But I recognize, like, in all of our conversations about patriarchy and inequity, that we were talking about it, patriarchy, like a bogeyman. And I wanted, I was like, who is it? What is it? Mm. You know, is it Mitch McConnell in mm. Oz behind a curtain? Um, he wishes. <laughs> yeah, pushing this stuff on yeah, me. Yeah. And I recognize, like, this is an ancient system and it's alive. And I am living. I'm breathing life into it. Mm. You are breathing life into it. But it, it does take collective action to recognize that and say, whoa, 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 wait, stop. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to sit on my butt all day, you know, and watch the tumbleweed move across my living room and most likely what I've also found in that in trying to stop to embrace my sloth that my husband does know how to do laundry <laughs> he's happy to do it I'm just have been so efficient in doing all the things for everyone all the time that there wasn't a lot of he doesn't do it on my schedule mm. on page this is we're speaking um, about something in particular that occurs on page 34 um, and I'm reading verbatim my husband does not share my, brackets, irrational perspective, I suspect, simply because as a man he's immune from the programming that he should be proving his worthiness by doing more. He feels no compulsion to make all his time have redeemable value. For him, once he's done his day job and the boys are asleep, it is enough. I will forever be apprehensive about my adequacy, plagued by the idea that I could and should do more. Hard relate to yes. that. Just this idea of productivity and worth and yeah. how gendered it seems to be that even if you sort of tick off everything on your to-do list, it's it's not actually about the list. Mm -mm. It's about whether or not you believe what is what who you are and how you live is just worthy of yes. both work, rest and and play. Yeah. And it's gendered. It is. This is, you know, there's this amazing woman, Carol Gilligan. She's she's very old now, but she is a psychologist who did formative formative work. She wrote this book called In a Different Voice, and it's about how morality develops in both boys and girls. Oh, this part made me so sad, uh, and it yeah. gave me goosebumps. I know. So two things that, I mean, there's a lot in her work that's stunning, but a lot of it is about, you know, how girls become dislocated from their voices, literally and otherwise. But she talks about how boys come to believe that they're supposed to be in the world, while girls are come to believe that they're supposed to be in service to the world. And then she talks about how in watching the maturation of boys and girls, the word don't comes to enter their vocabulary. And for women, for girls, it's I don't know. And for boys, it's I don't care. <sighs> That's right. That's the bit that made me I know. so it's, sad. It's staggering. And yet you look at where we are. And obviously that both of those statements are a fallacy. And yet that's where we're culturally led, mm. you know, where women are disavowing and I feel like within that specific example, you have such a powerful two phrases that also tell you everything that's wrong with patriarchy in how it hurts boys as well as girls. Yes. Yeah. That is yes. looking at both sides of how it hurts everyone. Yes. And it traps everyone. Yes. And that's those are the conversations that we collectively need to have, how wounding it is, how we need the next iteration of a culture, society. And I think that men understandably don't engage in this conversation because they're they're worried that they're going to be blamed, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, you know, we're, we have a lot of conversation, and I know you guys are having conversations here about indigenous rights, et cetera, all the time. And similarly in America, we're in the same conversations and about systemic racism, and we've had a really hard history. 
And it's that difference between saying, like, I didn't choose this. I was born into this. And yet it's still my responsibility to attend to it and evolve, mm -hmm. right? And for men, I think it's it's become a scary patriarchy. They just sort of hide or tune out, but it does affect them. It does wound them. And it's not their fault. We're all supporting and upholding this system and this structure, mm. you know? You've just been listening to Cool Story, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest stories of the week. This episode was produced by Sam Devonport. We're going to be asking a question in our Instagram stories this week. What has made you envious lately? You can also find us on YouTube or Instagram at CoolStoryBreeWrite, where we love to read your DMs and reactions to the show. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.